Welcome to Common Home Conversations Beyond UN75, a series by the Planetary Podcast. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear from leading global experts on how the proposal of recognizing the existence of an intangible global common without borders can change our relationship with our planet. The Common Home of Humanity has proposed an ambitious new global pact for the environment. The adverse effects of climate change span across borders and beyond territories. Recognizing the Earth system as a common heritage of humankind is the first step in restoring a stable climate, a visible manifestation of a well-functioning Earth system. This proposal's cascading effects would be systemic and tremendously impact international relations and economics, opening the doors to restoring a well-functioning Earth system. Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss a new social contract between society, economy, and the Earth system. Now, here is your host, founder and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White. Hello, and welcome to Common Home Conversations. Today, we are joined by Carl Burkhart, the co-founder and managing director of One Earth. Thank you for joining us today, Carl. Thanks. It's great to be here. Talking to you. Can you tell us more about One Earth and the focus of your work there? Uh, yeah, I'm the managing director of One Earth, um, and we are a um, philanthropic initiative, uh, particularly focused on the science policy interface for the three Rio conventions. Uh, and we are running, uh, correspondingly, roughly, uh, three major scientific models that we support, um, with leading scientists around the world contributing to those three models. The first big one um, is the climate and energy transition model, which was published last year in the form of a, a very dense 500-page book called Achieving the Paris Climate Agreement Goals, which was uh, authored by 17 leading climate and energy scientists and is now being widely cited. And uh, that was really to look at how we can, can we, and if so, how, how can we stay below the 1.5C threshold of global um, temperature rise? Uh, the second one, the second model uh, is called the Global Safety Net, which was just published on Friday in Science Advances. Uh, that was a two and a half year or plus effort, <laughs> uh, very large um, spatial analysis, the first global scale uh, analysis of biologically important land. Um, and one of the component products coming out of it is... Um, you could say a um, set of recommended area-based targets for the upcoming UN Biodiversity Convention. So that's the second a Rio Convention. So what it does is it shows uh, what are all the different types of land that can contribute to ecosystem services and biodiversity by country. This third model will be really contributing to looking at um, how we feed 10 million people uh, sustainably on the planet. So today we seem to have gone from climate deniers to an attitude of it's already too late. Do you think we have the science and technology available today to form the solutions to stabilize the climate and keep warming at 1.5 degrees? Uh, yes, I um, I love this question <laughs> because it is uh, the the answer is absolutely yes. We have the technology, and it's not just the technology solved and and sort of we need to now go into production it's like we have the technology it's as as obama would have said shovel ready you know we have it's sitting on the shelves um 
And in our, in the climate model, in the energy transition model we supported, um, according to that model, we need to go from about 20% renewable energy today to about 56% globally. And that varies by region, um, by 2030. So, uh, we, you know, this is relatively straightforward. Um, we know exactly how to do it. Uh, it's using technologies that are now battle tested for, you know, 10 or more years um, and are scaling quickly and becoming cheaper by the minute. So really, it's not the technology that's missing for the energy transition. It's the dollars. And um, in the client model, we have um, well, the back of envelope summary um, budget required for this, the transition I just mentioned is is about um, 1.3 trillion a year, roughly, um, and that's you know less than one third what governments spend today subsidizing fossil fuels, uh, which are causing global warming. <laughs> so, so for like less than a third of what we're paying to destroy the planet, we could transition the energy with technology, create tons of jobs, be great for the economy. It would, it would increase energy security as well. Uh, and it would reduce health uh, risks associated with fossil fuels and climate change. So it's win-win isn't the right word. It's like win, 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 win. <laughs> it's like five wins if we did that. And um, yeah, it's just a matter of really political will at this point, moving the dollars. So governments have been creating commitments and new targets to combat climate change while at the same time, as you just said, propping up the fossil fuel industry with trillions of dollars in subsidies adding to the climate crisis. Do you think the COVID-19 economic recovery efforts are an opportunity to shift away from business as usual and toward cleaner, greener energy? Um, yeah, I would say it's it's not just, yes, yeah, death, definitely, and not just on the energy side, but also the nature-based solutions side. Um, I'm seeing a lot coming from governments, especially the EU has been a big leader in this, and they've announced several um, commissions on sort of a green recovery. I think that it did, COVID did two things. One thing it did, which of course has positive and negative it slammed the brakes on the global economy. Like we literally, it was like you're driving in your car and a kid runs in front of you and you have to slam on your brakes in full stop. And um, that happened. So uh, it's sort of like all these conversations that were happening and there was going to be a climate convention, there's going to be a biodiversity convention, there's going to be this big UN summit, all these things, just everything went on hold. The results are kind of coming in now. We'll see what happens Um anywhere from 9 to 17% reduction in um, carbon emissions this year. Uh, we'll, we have to wait, obviously, uh, for the postmortem, but we think it'll probably be somewhere in the middle, like maybe 12, 13% um, of a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, which is, you know, actually more than what we needed to do in terms of being on the 1.5C track. So slamming on the brakes got us on the 1.5C course. Now, the question is, are we going to just slam on the gas pedal now? Um, and I mean that literally, right? Because we have to also convert our, uh, make our transportation system much cleaner. Um, but um, yeah, and I, I think that that slamming on the brakes gave us this pause um, and a lot of people to kind of get start getting their ducks in a row about um, starting to look at recovery packages that could then be targeted towards sustainable and green infrastructure, energy, and, and nature-based solutions. I think the other thing 
that I saw with COVID is that just the awareness of nature, uh, you know, how important nature is. You know, nature's always been hard to sell as a serious issue because somehow climate change just sounded sounded more technical. I mean, it, it was very technical and serious and a lot of technical and serious people started 20 years ago working on the climate convention. But for some reason, the biodiversity convention was sort of left as this really playing second fiddle in another room, you know, like, and kind of you had your sort of hippie organizations really fighting for nature, but it was like the, the sort of technical serious people didn't really get it. Um, and I think COVID made a lot of people realize what happens when you lose, when you start to unravel the natural infrastructure that is making, is providing the ecosystem services that the entire planet requires to exist. <laughs> um, you know, when you lose that, you start pulling out these threads and unraveling and unleashing things like zoonotic diseases, which are you know, diseases that transfer from animals. But we also have, we know that the loss of biodiversity and loss of, of nature means um, increases in also vector-borne diseases, which are carried by insects. So nature is our, is our shield um, that keeps humanity really in, in a op safe operating space. So I think that's been a big awareness also. Um, and why that was timely is because um, both the Climate Convention and the Biodiversity Convention got pushed a year uh, ish. I mean, Biodiversity Convention will be next um, spring. Climate Convention will be next um, fall. So it's kind of given us a breathing internationally, giving a, given us a breathing space to really, really think about this. So I think that's a positive. So you're one of the authors of the Global Deal for Nature. Can you elaborate more on this and explain what targets should be set to combat the extinction crisis? Yeah, so actually the um, the Global Deal for Nature was a paper really laying out the um, sort of the theoretical underpinnings of uh, and the methodology of what became the global safety net. So they are they can be thought of as a pair. Um, the Global Deal for Nature was released last year, and that was basically uh, a very initial analysis of the remaining natural, semi-natural lands um, and how important those lands are for both preserving biodiversity, but also for solving climate change. And um, that paper had the endorsement of over, I think we're up to 150 indigenous groups because one of the main points this paper makes is that when you really look for the most most rich, biodiverse, rich land and the land storing the most carbon, it ends up being indigenous lands. Um, and those lands need more protection and more, uh, in particular, in the form of land tenure given to the indigenous people who are managing those lands uh, to prevent land grabs and um, illegal logging and things like that. So... Uh, we, you know, so roughly the global deal for nature divided into those two categories I mentioned, sort of 30% kind of initially really needing uh, urgently for biodiversity and then another 20% for what they call climate stabilization or intactness. Um, across all of those lands, we later found out in the global safety net, um, roughly 35%, um, I, I can give you the statistic exactly. It's 
40% of the biologically, uh, sort of the biodiversity, the high biodiversity lands are overlap with indigenous territories. And then about 30% roughly of the additional stabilization areas overlap with indigenous lands. So we really see just how important uh, territorial rights for indigenous people are. Um, and so that, so in parallel, there was a lot of excitement around the release of Global Deal for Nature and a petition was launched. Um, and I think there's about three or four million signatures on there now to really call for this bigger protection target of 50%. Um, and, you know, the global safety net has just, the, the, which just was released, that really creates kind of the map, if you will, of what, what we were recommending in the Global Deal for Nature. And that map, you can kind of zoom in and look at the ecoregion level or the country level and get a finer sense of how that divides up. Um, so that, yeah, that's how the two work together. That's really interesting. We recently published an article on a new study that also supports what you just said. It found protecting indigenous people's lands is essential to curbing biodiversity loss. There's a lot of studies on this, and it's imperative that we recognize this now and ensure their land rights and moving forward, they should be a central voice in environmental governance. Yeah, totally agree. And I mean, actually, that really... Yeah, I'd, I'd just tag on to that. That I don't know. I don't think that paper did, but there. If if it hasn't come out, I, we should do this paper. But you really can't do 1.5 C without protecting indigenous lands. There's just so much carbon uh, stored on those lands, and there's um, a lot. There a lot of these lands are threatened, uh, as we see in Brazil and other places. Um, so yeah, essential for both conventions, I would say, and. Um, yeah, in terms of the governance, I mean, that it would be really interesting, I think, if you have a higher order legal theory around the idea of commons. The interesting thing about indigenous lands, and also I would say um, local, uh, so all communally held lands. And um, there's a really, I, we heard on the September 15th, there's a new paper coming out on communally held lands. We believe that roughly 50% of the world's land is communally held. Um, so a big part of that is indigenous lands, but there's also a big part that is um, what we call local communities or traditional communities who don't necessarily are identify themselves or identified by government as quote unquote indigenous, but have been on the land in some cases for hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, managing the land. So the if, if half the planet is managed communally already, by uh, indigenous people in local communities, they really need to be at the table when thinking through um, this, this new legal theory around commons, because they're actually practicing the commons right now. And, and, those, and, those, and, and their work is actually, in some way, you could say, subsidizing all of us, because without indigenous lands and the ecosystem services they provide, we would uh, we'd probably be at, I don't know what, two or three degrees Celsius already. Um, if you look at the vast stores of carbon on their lands, and they do so much of a better job conserving those lands, and a lot of times the national parks or government designation. So, um, yeah, I think it's a very exciting thing. Uh, we'd love to help facilitate that in some way, however we can. But, but there's a lot of actually experts already practicing a legal... <laughs> their own version of legal theory around communally held lands. And I think there's probably a lot to learn from that uh, to scale that up. 
So let's dive into the global safety net a bit more. What can you tell us about this project and what are you hoping to achieve? Yeah, I um, I mean, I think I, I probably covered some of it just explaining the global analysis. Um, it is just roughly, it's, it, uh, it's a little more complicated than this, but it's 11 different um, global analyses that were compiled. So um, I, I'd say it's like, we like to say it's sort of, um, I used to be in I, my former career before I went into environmental, all this environmental science technology work, I was an architect and you know, you can't, you can't build a building of any significance without blueprint. And, and we didn't have a blueprint for what do we need to do to save the biosphere, essentially? What does that look like on a map? And so the global safety net, you could say, was sort of like the artist. Uh, it wasn't really an artist. His science um, produced it. But it was sort of the rough sketch, if you will, of the blueprint um, to save our biosphere. And, um, and, you know, it also happened to confirm, confirm that finding that it's 50.4% of land area, um, inclusive of existing protected areas is we would consider, um, important for biodiversity and climate stabilization. So we have now that the beginning of a blueprint, uh, and with science, you know, really, in some ways, you know, you don't really want to have any agenda. You just want to get the science out there. And I think that was our thinking on this. Um, let's just, we just need to get it out there because even, even if you want to, uh, people may disagree on what some of the findings were or some of the spatial analysis techniques used to show um, that's good, you know, because I mean, think about it in the climate convention, there's literally thousands of scientists producing hundreds and hundreds of models and all those models because there's hundreds of brilliant scientists working around the world producing their own model they get to be compiled and we get a really really accurate sense of of all with contributions from all these different scientists so global safety is just the first one we hope that there would be dozens more analyses like this that would present their own prioritizations. Um, it could be at the country level, the region level, the global level. But um, we we want this to go be out there just to start the beginning of these global models, which hopefully will inform the convention, you know, over the next 10 years. But, you know, at some point, you just got to get the science out <laughs> and, and let people react to it. Uh, and, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult peer review process. It took a really long time. And... Um, and we're using some novel techniques. And so like all things, it's the beginning. It's also at one, one kilometer resolution, which is fairly crude. Um, you know, you can't use it to actually create a land plan. Um, but you can use it to drive fairly accurate statistics. And so, you know, I would say all the, the, what we'd say here, the country level quote-unquote targets that you can see in the rankings um, on the website. The website, by the way, is globalsafetynet.app. Um, and that is, uh, we did built that in partnership with Google Earth. Um, so you, it's just a way to display the data. Um, and yeah, you can see that uh, there are, you know, every country is different. You know, there is a different amount and different types of every, all of those different classifications I mentioned um, there are different amounts of those in each country. Uh, and so it's up to each country to figure out how to prioritize the protection of lands. We would strongly advocate for 
um, really pushing the this thirty percent that is identified as as being of of, of um, particular importance for biodiversity uh, is that really just that needs to be protected like yesterday, you know, in in our view, um, but. The science is the science, you know, so we got to just let it out there and have people react to it. So do you think it's possible to achieve these major conservation and restoration efforts spanning 50% of lands and oceans and boosting nature-based solutions without a legal framework within which to develop global policies? I would say that we are, as a as human civilization uh, or civilizations, however you want to say it, um, the human presence on Earth is... The longevity of that is really a question mark at this point. We we are on the verge of being snuffed out. I mean, if we hit, you know, 1.5 degrees in global average temperature rise. Now, to point out, we're already in many regions of the Earth, we're already at 1.5 degrees Celsius. So like Australia, California now um, was just yesterday at 112 degrees in Los Angeles. So we're... The Earth is warming in different rates. Um, particularly worrisome are is the um, extraordinary warming happening on both poles, Antarctica and the Ant and the Arctic. We've really got a gun to our heads because we're at 1.1 degrees Celsius global average temperature rise, and we're seeing collapse of major ice sheets and fires that were not predicted to happen at the scale they're happening right now. So. We're pretty sure at 1.5 degrees Celsius, at least um, one Earth's position is is a lot more. Um, we're a lot more worried than the current consensus position on on the reality of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and you know, there's one paper I like to cite that shows that at 1.5 degrees Celsius, we'd likely lose eight percent of our arable land. So, you know, imagine 6 million people migrating out of Syria because of prolonged drought and aridification of land, arable land, because of prolonged drought there. You know, imagine that times 50. You know, can the world sustain 50 Syrian refugee crises happening simultaneously? You know, combined with sea level rise, combined with fires, combined with all these other things. No, I do not think so. <laughs> so like 1.5 C is an existential threat that um, is unlike, you know, anything um, that humanity has ever faced. So the problem is the, the UN, which is very young, we have to remind ourselves, you know, it's only 75 years old. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's about the same age as, as my, you know, one of my grandparents, uh, my, one of my parents, right? So, um, and a lot of people's grandparents. So, it was this first attempt at bringing the world's governments together to look at multilateral agreements. The problem is the legal theory wasn't really there. So, um, even when we have conventions that get ratified, a lot of times the everyone walks away and no one does much, you know, or they, they go halfway to what their commitment was. Um, so I'm really hopeful that, you know, we're definitely need the emergence of, of a new legal theory around the commons um, is going to be a game changer. I don't, I don't understand it enough to know how it, all the ways it could be implemented, but I do know that, 
this conversation has to start now because it's very hard to believe that we are going to stay at this point. We are going to stay below 1.5C with just leaning on government policy and and a, a Paris Agreement. How would the common home of humanity contribute to reaching these much-needed goals and help to avoid these existential threats? The common home has the right framing. Like, they're thinking about the problem at the scale that it needs to be thought of. Like, you know, um, you cannot solve, as we, <laughs> as the saying goes, you cannot solve a problem, a vexing problem within the confines of that problem. You have to go outside of the problem. And I think that that's what Common Home does is it's, it's, it's leaping outside of the confines of national and even multilateral policymaking and going one higher order up. And I think that is the thinking that has to happen now. I, I don't know what would be involved in getting governments on board. <laughs> um, but I know that we have to start the conversation. So it's really great. They're leading that charge. Um, and I think the idea of the commons having rights is a way to bring on board bigger stakeholders. Because uh, right now it's mostly, you know, it's like really like uh, super progressive NGOs and, and indigenous groups and, um, and, you know, youth groups forming these class action lawsuits, which is a great precedent, but to onboard, you know, governments um, is what, that's what we have to do. So I think that bigger, bigger legal theory that the common is working on are really going to be important for that. On the Global Deal for Nature, you cite a study called an eco-region-based approach to protect half the terrestrial realm. And a key concept in that paper is that each of the world's 846 terrestrial eco-regions needs its own plan shared by countries whose boundaries overlap its geopolitical extent. How will the common home of humanity help to achieve this? Yeah, I mean, I would love to, um, I would so love to explore that. Um, with, with you guys because, uh, so that we have the 846 eco regions, um, and, you know, 846 is a lot. <laughs> and, um, the, the issue with eco, and these are land eco regions. So we have, um, terrestrial eco regions, uh, freshwater eco regions and marine or coastal eco regions. And, um, the eco regions, the 2017 eco regions paper, um, was game changer. It identifies the 846 land um, or terrestrial ecoregions. The issue with those is that a lot of times you have one ecoregion that's very intertwined with another. Um, and one example of that may be uh, if you go to Wyoming in the United States where you have the grasslands meeting the, the Rockies, where they, um, the northern Rockies, and you have this entanglement of grasslands and for the, the forests that are there, the mountainous forests. So what we realized is actually for a global framework, um, for our own work, which is focused on, on science, implementing science, um, to, you know, achieve, uh, the goals of the conventions. Um, we needed a bioregional, like a slightly larger or a higher order, um, Co combination of ecoregions. So that we're calling the bioregions. Uh, so it's bioregions 2020, and that's going to be coming out in a few weeks. And um, there's eight, 184 of them. 
So it's actually a similar number to countries. Uh, and we, we like to call them if nature, you know, if nature got to draw a map of the world, this is what it might look like. And, and there, these are 184 of nature's countries. And those are groupings of ecoregions, um, confined by major geomorphic structures. So that's, um, basins, mountain ranges, coastal plains, things like that. Um, and so it's a novel bioregion, biogeographical framework, which, uh, we think will really allow for collaboration um, between those stakeholder governments that overlap the bioregion. So it's taking the ecoregions idea, and the ecoregions are the building blocks, right? So no ecoregion is divided up. They're, um, they're like the Lego blocks, if you will, of the bioregions. Um, and then the bioregions also include adjacent coastal and um, freshwater areas. So we're not um, limiting the field of study to just the land uh, alongside the river, but also the river. And we're not limiting it to just, say, the coastal plain uh, adjacent to the ocean, but also the coastal areas off the ocean. Because if you're thinking about food security, for example, you can't, you, you can't really do that. Uh, you have to do that at a bioregional level because... You have fishermen um, providing seafood, and then you have the land area that's able to provide crops, and there might be livestock and um, rangelands activity. All of these things have to be thought of together, not separately. So that's why we think the bioregions would be really, could be, you know, a really interesting framework. So it'd be really cool to have collaborate with you on on that and um may, uh, if it's a useful structure again we're just putting it out in creative commons um, because we want everyone to be able to access it uh but it will on our website will be rolling out on the one earth website if you go to explore by uh, you'll see the bioregions and we'll have a the first i think it's the first ever um spherical map uh, that you can click on. And, um, so it's a clickable spherical map, <laughs> uh, which I'm being told hasn't been done. I'm sure someone's done it, but, um, you'll be able to click on and then explore all about the bioregion you live in and the ecoregions that make up that bioregion. So that we're kind of just pushing that out as a content, um, and information just out in the Creative Commons. Um, but we would love it if it could be adapted in more ways to be used for for this idea of bioregional, um, the bioregional commons, which I think is kind of the direction we're going to need to go in. Absolutely. I know I'm looking forward to checking out that map. It's pretty cool. It's really beautiful. It's very colorful. And uh, the, the developers who built it are pretty, pretty badass. So <laughs> we're looking forward to get, getting out there. <laughs> I'm excited to see how this collaboration plays out and all of the great things you guys will be doing in the near future. So that's it for today's interview. Thank you for joining us, Carl. Yeah, thank you. It was fun talking to you. Good questions. <laughs> All right, and there you have it. The solutions to the climate crisis already exist. By utilizing the latest science and technology, we can limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by protecting and restoring half of the planet's lands and oceans and making the shift to renewable energy. The legal framework proposed by the Common Home of Humanity can help achieve these ambitious goals. That is all for today, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations Beyond UN75. Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in next week to continue the conversation with our special guest, Janine Yazzie, co-convener of the Indigenous 
Indigenous Peoples major group on sustainable development. And visit us at www.theplanetarypress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.